Section four of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in May two thousand nineteen. Chapter one The King and the Queen. A few preliminary words about Tutankhamun, the king whose name the whole world knows, and who in that sense probably needs an introduction less than anyone in history. He was the son-in-law, as everyone knows, of that most written about and probably most overrated of all the Egyptian pharaohs, the heretic king Akhenaten. Of his parentage we know nothing. He may have been of the blood royal and had some indirect claim on the throne on his own account. He may, on the other hand, have been a mere commoner. The point is immaterial, for, by his marriage to a king's daughter, he at once, by Egyptian law of succession, became a potential heir to the throne. A hazardous and uncomfortable position it must have been to fill at this particular stage of this country's history. Abroad, the empire founded in the 15th century BC by Tothmes III, and held, with difficulty it is true, but still held, by succeeding monarchs, had crumpled up like a pricked balloon. At home dissatisfaction was rife. The priests of the ancient faith, who had seen their gods flouted and their very livelihood compromised, were straining at the leash, only waiting the most convenient moment to slip it all together. The soldier class, condemned to a mortified inaction, was seething with discontent and apt for any form of excitement. The foreign harem element, women who had been introduced into the court and into the families of soldiers in such large numbers since the wars of conquest, were now, at a time of weakness, a sure and certain focus of intrigue. The manufacturers and merchants, as foreign trade declined and home credit was diverted to a local and extremely circumscribed area, were rapidly becoming sullen and discontented. The common populace, intolerant of change, grieving, many of them, at the loss of their old familiar gods, and ready enough to attribute any loss, deprivation, or misfortune to the jealous intervention of these offended deities, were changing slowly from bewilderment to active resentment at the new heaven and new earth that had been decreed for them. And through it all, Ankenatun, Gallio of Gallios, dreamt his life away at Tel el Amarna. The question of a successor was a vital one for the whole country, and we may be sure that intrigue was rampant. Of male heirs there was none, and interest centres on a group of little girls, the eldest of whom could not have been more than fifteen at the time of her father's death. Young as she was, this eldest princess, Myrta Ten by name, had already been married some little while, for in the last year or two of Ankenaton's reign we find her husband associated with him as co-regent, a vain attempt to avert the crisis which even the arch-dreamer Ankenaton must have felt to be inevitable. Her taste of queenship was but a short one, for Smenk Ray, her husband, died within a short while of Ankenaton. He may even, as evidence in this tomb seems to show, have predeceased him, and it is quite possible that he met his death at the hands of a rival faction. In any case he disappears, and his wife with him, 
and the throne was open to the next claimant. The second daughter, Macdeton, died unmarried in Ankenaton's lifetime. The third, Ankesen Pa Atun, was married to Tutankatun, as he then was, the Tutankamun with whom we are now so familiar. Just when this marriage took place is not certain. It may have been in Ankenatun's lifetime, or it may have been contracted hastily immediately after his death to legalize his claim to the throne. In any event, they were but children. Ank Esenpa Atun was born in the eighth year of her father's reign, and therefore cannot have been more than ten, and we have reason to believe, from internal evidence in the tomb, that Tutankhamun himself was little more than a boy. Clearly, in the first years of this reign of children, there must have been a power behind the throne, and we can be tolerably certain who this power was. In all countries, but more particularly in those of the Orient, it is a wise rule, in cases of doubtful or weak succession, to pay particular attention to the movements of the most powerful court official. In the Tel el Amarna court, this was a certain I, chief priest, court chamberlain, and practically court everything else. He himself was a close personal friend of Ankhenaten's, and his wife Taiyi was nurse to the royal wife Nefertiti, so we may be quite sure there was nothing that went on in the palace that they did not know. Now, looking ahead a little, we find that it was this same I who secured the throne himself after Tutankhamun's death. We also know, from the occurrence of his cartouche in the sepulchral chamber of the newly found tomb, that he made himself responsible for the burial ceremonies of Tutankhamun, even if he himself did not actually construct the tomb. It is quite unprecedented in the valley to find the name of a succeeding king upon the walls of his predecessor's sepulchral monument. The fact that this was so in this case seems to imply a special relationship between the two, and we shall probably be safe in assuming that it was I who was largely responsible for establishing the boy king upon the throne. Quite possibly he had designs upon it himself already but, not feeling secure enough for the moment, preferred to bide his time and utilize the opportunities he would undoubtedly have, as minister to a young and inexperienced sovereign, to consolidate his position. It is interesting to speculate, and when we remember that I, in his turn, was supplanted by another of the leading officials of Ankenaton's reign, the General Horemheb, and that neither of them had any real claim to the throne, we can be reasonably sure that in this little byway of history, from 1375 to 1350 BC, there was a well-set stage for dramatic happenings. However, as self-respecting historians, let us put aside the tempting might-have-beens and probablys, and come back to the cold hard facts of history. What do we really know about this Tutankhamun, with whom we have become so surprisingly familiar? remarkably little when you come right down to it. In the present state of our knowledge we might say with truth that the one outstanding feature of his life was the fact that he died and was buried. Of the man himself, if indeed he ever arrived at the dignity of manhood, and of his personal character we know nothing. Of the events of his short reign we can glean a little, a very little, from the monuments. 
we know for instance that at some time during his reign he abandoned the heretic capital of his father-in-law and removed the court back to thebes that he began as an atun worshipper and reverted to the old religion is evident from his name tutankhatun changed to tutankhamun and from the fact that he made some slight additions and restorations to the temples of the old gods at thebes there is also a steel in the cairo museum which originally stood in one of the karnak temples in which he refers to these temple restorations in somewhat grandiloquent language i found he says the temples fallen into ruin with their holy places overthrown and their courts overgrown with weeds i reconstructed their sanctuaries i re-endowed the temples and made them gifts of all precious things i cast statues of the gods in gold and electrum decorated with lapis lazuli and all fine stones footnote this steel parts of which are roughly translated above was subsequently usurped by Horemheb, as were almost all Tutankhamun's monuments. End footnote. We do not know at what particular period in his reign this change of religion took place, nor whether it was due to personal feeling or was dictated to him for political reasons. We know from the tomb of one of his officials that certain tribes in Syria and in the Sudan were subject to him and brought him tribute, and on many of the objects in his own tomb we see him trampling with great gusto on prisoners of war and shooting them by hundreds from his chariot but we must by no means take for granted that he ever in actual fact took the field himself egyptian monarchs were singularly tolerant of such polite fictions that pretty well exhausts the facts of his life as we know them from the monuments from his tomb so far there is singularly little to add we are getting to know to the last detail what he had but of what he was and what he did we are still sadly to seek there is nothing yet to give us the exact length of his reign six years we knew before as a minimum much more than that it cannot have been we can only hope that the inner chambers will be more communicative his body, if, as we hope and expect, it still lies between the shrines within the sepulchre, will at least tell us his age at death, and may possibly give us some clue to the circumstances. Just a word as to his wife, Ankesen Pa Atun, as she was known originally, and Ankesen Amun after the reversion to Thebes. As the one through whom the king inherited, she was a person of considerable importance, and he makes due acknowledgment of the fact by the frequency with which her name and person appear upon the tomb furniture a graceful figure she was too unless her portraits do her more than justice and her friendly relations with her husband are insisted on in true tell el amarna style there are two particularly charming representations of her in one on the back of the throne plate two she anoints her husband with perfume in the other she accompanies him on a shooting expedition and is represented crouching at his feet handing him an arrow with one hand and with the other pointing out to him a particularly fat duck which she fears may escape his notice charming pictures these and pathetic too when we remember that at seventeen or eighteen years of age the wife was left a widow well perhaps 
on the other hand if we know our orient perhaps not for to this story there is a sequel provided for us by a number of tablets found some years ago in the ruins of bokos Key and only recently deciphered an interesting little tale of intrigue it outlines and in a few words we get a clearer picture of queen ankesen amun than tutankhamun was able to achieve for himself in his entire equipment of funeral furniture she was it seems a lady of some force of character the idea of retiring into the background in favour of a new queen did not appeal to her and immediately upon the death of her husband she began to scheme she had we may presume at least two months grace the time that must elapse between tutankhamun's death and burial for until the last king was buried it was hardly likely that the new one would take over the reins now in the past two or three reigns there had been constant intermarriages between the royal houses of egypt and asia one of ankesen amun's sisters had been sent in marriage to a foreign court and many egyptologists think that her own mother was an asiatic princess it was not surprising then that in this crisis she should look abroad for help and we find her writing a letter to the king of the hittites in the following terms my husband is dead and i am told that you have grown-up sons send me one of them and i will make him my husband and he shall be king over egypt it was a shrewd move on her part for there was no real heir to the throne in egypt and the swift dispatch of a hittite prince with a reasonable force to back him up would probably have brought off a very successful coup promptitude however was the one essential and here the queen was reckoning without the hittite king hurry in any matter was well outside his calculations it would never do to be rushed into a scheme of this sort without due deliberation and how did he know that the letter was not a trap so he summoned his counsellors and the matter was talked over at length eventually it was decided to send a messenger to egypt to investigate the truth of the story where he writes in his reply and you can see him patting himself on the back for his shrewdness is the son of the late king and what has become of him now it took some fourteen days for a messenger to go from one country to the other so the poor queen's feelings can be imagined when after a month's waiting she received in answer to her request not a prince and a husband but a dilatory futile letter in despair she writes again why should i deceive you i have no son and my husband is dead send me a son of yours and i will make him king the hittite king now decides to accede to her request and to send a son but it is evidently too late the time had gone by the document breaks off here and it is left to our imagination to fill in the rest of the story did the hittite prince ever start for egypt and how far did he get did i the new king get wind of ankesen amun's schemings and take effectual steps to bring them to naught we shall never know in any case the queen disappears from the scene and we hear of her no more it is a fascinating little tale had the plot succeeded there would never have been a rameses the great end of section four